Black Warriors, Tansei Sego Ani Buju, Kwei Ninda Luizi Pempometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. And it's also about living, asserting, and defending our sovereignty as nations. Today, I want to talk to you about reconciliation. Reconciliation has become the buzzword of the last few years ever since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission the TRC, published their report and their 94 calls to action. For anyone who doesn't know, the TRC report was about the residential school era in Canada. It was headed by then Justice Murray Sinclair, who heard from residential school survivors, families and communities all over Canada about their experiences with residential schools. And despite being called schools, Residential schools were nothing but. They were actually designed to separate Indigenous children from their parents, their extended families, and their communities for the express purposes of assimilating them into Canadian society. We know that those schools lasted for over 100 years, and the last one really only closed in 1996. Thousands of children were starved, neglected, tortured, medically experimented on, mentally, physically, and or sexually abused, or even murdered. Their experiences have had long-lasting and intergenerational impacts on many thousands more. If you think about all of the multiple generations that went to residential schools and the multiple generations that came after who were impacted by those who went to residential schools. Now the TRC offered 94 calls to action to the federal and provincial governments, churches, businesses, the media, the public, as well as universities and colleges. But the report went well beyond just those 94 calls to action. It talked about reconciliation in general with Indigenous peoples and really highlighted the fact that this is everybody's responsibility. However, as in the case with many royal commissions, public inquiries, or other lengthy reports, many people never read them. However, that didn't stop people from actually taking the word reconciliation and literally applying it to anything that touches on Indigenous issues and calling that reconciliation. But to my mind, the word reconciliation should have a much more substantive meaning. Not just in the residential school context, but in the entire relationship between Native people and the Crown. To my mind, reconciliation is firstly about exposing the whole truth of the genocide that has been committed in Canada against Native peoples. Now the TRC report said that residential schools were in fact cultural genocide, but it was part of a much larger policy that included both physical and biological genocide. Canada really needs to come to terms with that. Secondly, reconciliation to me is about taking full responsibility for what happened. And that means there should be no diminishing the experiences of survivors, no making excuses or trying to justify what happened, not using semantics to try to downplay the atrocities that were committed 
or denying the harms that the survivors actually suffered. We, in fact, should be centering the voices of the survivors and not the perpetrators. And finally, reconciliation is about making a real apology. Not a court-ordered apology, not a carefully worded political apology, but I mean a real apology where Canada accepts responsibility for its actions, names those actions, promises to never do it again, and then makes full amends for the harms that were done. Canada, in general, seems to be stuck on the apology part of things and engaging in superficial forms of reconciliation, but hasn't advanced reconciliation in fundamental or substantive ways. It's failing to stop the harm that was ongoing during residential schools. It's committing the same harm today. For example, while the last residential school may have closed in 1996, this was followed by the 60 scoop forced adoptions and now the crisis of foster care, where more native children are stolen and put into foster care today than even at the height of residential schools. It's been called a humanitarian crisis. So it doesn't look like superficial apologies have done anything to stop the harm. And when I say Canada, I want to be clear who it is that I'm talking about. I'm talking about federal, provincial, territorial, municipal governments for sure. Also the churches as perpetrators, but also Canadian citizens, media, businesses and corporations, and of course, universities and colleges. Every single person or institution in Canada has benefited from the genocide and dispossession committed against Native peoples, either directly or indirectly. And that means every single person and institution in Canada has a moral and legal obligation to act and make amends. Now that makes a lot of people uncomfortable to hear this. And I'll get into the different areas of reconciliation in future episodes. You know, what should Canadians be doing as individuals and so forth. But today, I want to talk about reconciliation in the context of universities and colleges. And I mean well beyond the few calls to action that were specific to universities and colleges in the TRC. Because I have some real concerns based on my experience working in, with, and advising and reviewing the reconciliation work of numerous universities, it's clear there's a real problem. And it's also clear to me that there's a misunderstanding about reconcil what reconciliation really means. Now, in the calls to action, the TRC did call on universities to do things like create Aboriginal language degrees and diploma programs. Uh, to ensure that there's mandatory courses dealing with health issues in medical and nursing schools that are consistent with and include skills-based training in things like anti-racism and human rights. They also recommended that law schools have mandatory courses in Aboriginal people in law, again with the same skills-based training. And of course they asked universities and colleges and educators working with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, often referred to as SHRC, to advance reconciliation in terms of national research. 
They also asked journalism programs and media schools, again, to have mandatory education for all of their students. And all of those things are incredibly important and would make a big difference. Reconciliation goes beyond those calls to action. But I think in order to properly understand what I'm talking about in the university context, we're going to have to have this conversation in reverse. That means before I talk about what reconciliation means at universities, I need to start with what it doesn't mean. And so for any universities, colleges, or training institutions that are out there and listening to my podcast, or students who can go and tell their professors, who can go tell their university administration, here is what is on my non-reconciliation list. Apologies for the university's past contribution to the oppression of Indigenous peoples. Land acknowledgements. Senior administration or professors attending First Nation communities or powwows. Hanging native art on campus. Changing street names or building names on campus to reflect Indigenous names. Partaking in cultural sensitivity training. Watching documentaries like Colonization Road, or reading books like Thomas King's The Inconvenient Indian. Sending an email to a First Nation or First Nation organization asking them, what can you do to help? Hiring more Indigenous peoples as faculty and staff to reflect our percentage of the population. Having an elder open and close your conferences on campus. Nominating an Indigenous faculty or staff person for an award. Inviting Indigenous faculty to sit on various advisory committees, groups, meetings, or even on Senate. Creating an Indigenous advisory committee that was focused specifically on Indigenous issues to advise senior administration. Sending out social media communications wishing everyone a happy National Indigenous Day by tweets or Facebooks or Instagram. Including Native peoples in your research projects. Inviting Native speakers into your classrooms. This is quite a list. And this is just a brief list. There's a lot of other similar activities that I would include in the non-reconciliation list. And there are many universities and colleges that are doing all or some of these things under the banner of reconciliation right now. But why do I argue that these are not reconciliation? Because if you look at the list, you'll notice that these are the things that should already be done as a matter of federal law or provincial law, employment laws, non-discrimination laws, anti-racism laws, equality laws, and various campus commitments to things like diversity, equity, and multiculturalism. If you're doing your job according to the law and what should be done in terms of human resources even, all of these things would be taken into account already. And so I don't think universities get to pat themselves on the back for doing what they should be doing already under the law. They don't get to publish reconciliation reports saying, hey, look at what we're doing, when it's in fact what they should be doing in the law. 
Furthermore, some of the things that I named should be happening as a matter of academic practice. For example, if you teach about Native issues, of course you should be centering Native voices and content. Of course you should be going and meeting with communities, you should be learning more. Of course you should be doing Native research and you should be having Native people come and speak to your classes. That's a matter of professional standards and, and, and academic practice. That's not reconciliation. You're not doing Native people any favors by engaging in those practices. That's something that you should be doing as a competent professional and academic. So then, if this list isn't reconciliation, what should be considered reconciliation? Well, here's my list. I have a long list, but this is just a few things to get universities started. Not only do they need to hire more Indigenous faculty and staff to reflect our percentage of the population, but they need to hire at least 10 to 20% extra people to build capacity, provide support for the new hires, and to make amends for having excluded Native peoples illegally for all of these years on university campuses. Indigenous hires should be happening in all faculties, especially law, politics, science, engineering, medical, and business, in addition to the usual places where you would find Native people in social work, early childhood education, midwifery, and Native studies. It is not good enough for a university to say, hey, look at all of our faculty over here in Native studies and not be represented in all of the other faculties. Do not ever just hire one Native faculty member at a time. And universities can quote budgets all they want, but universities have a way of prioritizing funding that they can hire more than one Indigenous faculty member at a time. Imagine hiring one. What an incredibly unfair burden to that faculty member because everyone with the best of intentions will want their advice, guidance, ideas, and participation on every committee, project, and initiative. When you hire, you have to develop and consider that there might be alternative workload scenarios and expectations, because many First Nation hires, for example, will also have corresponding community-based expectations and obligations that should be accommodated. It is their unique connection to their home communities and First Nations that the knowledge base, the traditions, customs, and practices that inform who they are, how they teach, and their research that is important when you hire First Nations people. That, that means it has to be counted. It has to be counted in the workload of that individual. Otherwise, you're going to burden them with double the workload. Don't stop at recruitment and hiring of Indigenous faculty. Let's just say you're lucky enough to have hired six this year in a range of uh, departments. Think about more what your institution does to keep them there. What kinds of supports, mentorship, recognition, research dollars, promotions, pay, opportunities, and training do you have for these faculty? 
Lots of universities like to get the shiny new ideas and all the acclaim in the media with new centers and new institutions and new research projects and they put all their focus and money there. And they forget about how important it is to actually retain the programs that they do have, including Indigenous faculty. Real reconciliation, real reconciliation is more than about who teaches. It's also about Indigenous peoples being represented in both governance and senior administration of universities and colleges as presidents, provosts, chandler, chancellors, and the Board of Governors, for example. Indigenous peoples also need to be the ones deciding how research funding related to Native peoples is distributed, who gets research chairs in Native studies, how academic success is measured, and it means including the community-based work that goes along with that. No longer can universities just think about the tuition-paying students. They have to think about the communities from which all of this knowledge comes from and their corresponding obligations to give back. First Nations also need to have a direct line of input into university programs, curricula, research, and governance that impact them and their students. It is never good enough to have one Native faculty member speak for diverse First Nations that may exist all over one uh, geographic area or in one province. Every university campus sits on Native territory. And as such, it should reflect the local native territory, the local native language, cultures, and symbols throughout the entire campus in a way that's directed by those local native peoples, true to our cultures, and not just in one native studies area, for example. The benefit and privilege of university research and education needs to be fully shared with local First Nations with a more open access type commitment for information, the translation of research into accessible formats, and other ways in which we can assist First Nations with their own advocacy needs. Like I said, universities need to think about education beyond the tuition-paying students and include strategic partnerships and alliances with communities to help fill research, policy, or technical gaps that exist due to underfunding, non-fulfillment of treaty rights, and the dispossession of Native peoples in education by institutions like universities. Let's take, for example, there's a current crisis of native languages all across the country. More than 94% of native languages are in super risk of being um, extinct. Universities and colleges could partner with First Nations, elders, language speakers, faculty, and other experts to save those languages from extinction. Together, they could work to develop comprehensive uh, K-12 education, post-secondary education, community-based language instruction to try to undo the devastating impacts of Canada's assimilatory policies in general and the university's role in perpetuating that assimilation. Universities need to be informed about what their reconciliation plans are by First Nations and First Nation experts that may include faculty 
but it should never be solely faculty. Otherwise, this risks forging ahead with superficial plans like the growing trend or rushing to hire self-identified Native people who are not Native, not connected to a community, and have no lived experience as a Native person, except they, as a white ethnicity, went shopping on Ancestry.com and found that they have an ancestor a hundred generations removed and are now claiming Native identity for opportunistic purposes, like getting a targeted Native faculty position or targeted Native research. Universities are being flooded, some of them unknowingly, by those making these false claims. By the universities not living up to their legal responsibility to address these false claims, they commit further harms to Native people by doing this. It erases our voices, our Native identities are trumped by these white ethnicity shoppers, and our numbers are skewed, and the research is ultimately tainted because it won't be Indigenous at all. It could in fact be part of the second wave of colonization by universities if they don't step up to stop this appropriation. Clearly, there's a long list of things that universities and colleges should be doing. Some of it will happen in the short term, some of it will be in the longer term. But without real Native people at the helm, directing the path, university plans for reconciliation could cause more harm than good. And universities don't just have a moral obligation here, they have a legal one. Take, for example, the context of targeted funding. If provinces dedicate targeted funding to universities, specifically for Native research or Native faculty, and universities don't work with First Nation partners to come up with a plan to make sure that they actually, these funds actually go to Indigenous peoples, then they are exposed to some legal risk. There's a lot to do, and it's going to require a fundamental shift in thinking and in practice. Universities can't simply tweak their current structures or add a little bit of Indigenous here and a little bit of Indigenous there. It may in fact require a 180 degree turn to do it right in certain circumstances. Reconciliation requires that universities act and they act responsibly and they act in partnership. They are part of the miseducation of Canadians for hundreds of years. They're responsible for the exclusion of Native voices at universities and the ultimate cover-up of things like residential schools and genocide. I know it's a lot of work to do, but I believe that we're all coming together under this banner of reconciliation and that it can be done. And I think if we work together in partnership and not in isolation, we will be able to do this in a meaningful and profound way. I hope that you all found value in this discussion. I'll be posting more reconciliation podcasts with a different lens each time. Thank you all for tuning into my show. I'll post a link to some articles that I wrote about things like appropriated native identities in the description box below. And I'll also post a link uh, to my YouTube channel, which has a video of a lecture that I gave on reconciliation. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode.
Please also continue to leave your comments and questions and suggestions for other shows. They're really helpful and they help guide me about what you'd like to hear next. This podcast, The Warrior Life, is hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Well,